Genesis chapter 25. And um, it says here we are to start at verse 29, but um, we'll start at verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abram's son. Abram fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now we turn to the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, actually, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, the verses 14 to the end. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, if even a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, 
and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, For our God is a consuming fire. That is our reading for this afternoon. And the focal point of the sermon will be the Word of God as we confess it in Lord's Day 27 of the Catechism. Last week, when we dealt with Lord's Day 26, we um, read what it says about being washed with the blood and spirit of Christ, and how that is represented through the water of baptism. And Lord's Day 27 then asks, does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? No, only the blood of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins? God speaks in this way for a good reason. He wants to teach us that the blood and spirit of Christ remove our sins just as water takes away dirt from the body. But even more important, he wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are as truly cleansed from our sins spiritually as we are bodily washed with water. Should infants do be baptized? Yes, infants as well as adults belong to God's covenant and congregation. Through Christ's blood, the redemption from sin, and the Holy Spirit who works faith are promised to them no less than to adults. Therefore, by baptism, a sign of the covenant, they must be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the old covenant by circumcision, in place of which baptism was instituted in the new covenant. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, today we've come to Lord's Day 27 of the Catechism. Now normally these Lord's Days seem to be quite well organized, but at first glance this one is different. If you look at the first two questions of Lord's Day 27, it it almost seems like they should have belonged with Lord's Day 26. It's almost as if we should have dealt with that last week but didn't get around to it. That's not actually the case, though. These first two questions of Lord's Day 27 are part of a bigger background regarding the the baptismal promises. 
Lord's Day 26 assures us that we can depend on those promises. Lord's Day 27 tells us who they are for. It's important to know who the promises are for. Are these promises only for believers? Or are they for their children as well? Is baptism a sign of God's promises? Or is it a sign of your faith? Because if it's a sign of your faith, you will be led to look into yourself for assurance. But if it's a sign of what God has done and what He does, then you can look to Him. So Lord's Day 27 redirects our focus to the blood of Christ alone and the Spirit of Christ alone to remove our sins and to make us children of our Father. And so this afternoon we will pay attention to the promise. The promise is for you and for your children. And we'll see how it is received and how it is fulfilled. So to understand baptism, it helps to know what it actually represents. And in our circles, we really only have one, one meaning that goes with baptism, right? When you hear the word baptism, you think of what happens there. You think of a baby being held and water being sprinkled on it. But in the Greek language, which was the language in which the New Testament was written, the word baptize has a broader meaning than the meaning we usually give it. It can apply, for example, to a ship sinking. It can even be used to describe drowning. So baptism, with that kind of broader original background, actually also has connotations of violent death. It's a symbol of judgment over sin, sin that deserves death and burial. And for us, looking at it through the lens of the whole New Testament, baptism symbolizes the death of Christ. The Apostle Paul reflects that in Romans 6 verse 3 when he says, All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. So it doesn't just represent death in general, but the death of Christ. It is a depiction of judgment over our sin. The judgment that Christ underwent. It's important for us to keep that in mind. So often we think of baptism as a high point in the history of the family. A child is, is awaited for nine months and then it's born and it's baptized. We have coffee and sometimes cake and everybody lines up here to congratulate the parents. But we should remember that baptism is actually a sign of God's judgment over sin. It represents death. Now, if that was all that baptism represented, then it would be a horrible thing to do to your children. But the whole meaning has changed for us because the name of the triune God is pronounced over the waters. We are drawn out of the water, so to speak, instead of being left there. We're baptized into the name of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in the Bible, a name is never just a name. A name is a reputation. A name is everything that the person stands for. And we have that in English too, don't we? We say that somebody has a good name. Someone has a good reputation. And the name of God is everything that he stands for. It is everything that he is towards us. The God who saves, the God who acts in history, the God who delivers, the God of salvation. When we're baptized into his name, he declares that we stand under his protection, that we belong to him, that he promises to cleanse us and purify us on the deepest possible level. Our baptism depicts what Christ went through 
because he was baptized as well. Not just by John the Baptist at the Jordan River. No, he was baptized in the fullest sense of the word. He underwent the judgment of God instead of us. He endured baptism in the ultimate sense of what that word means. He was fully immersed in the flood of God's wrath. And he saw it coming. In Luke 12, verse 50, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. It's his imminent death coming towards him, the judgment of God, and he calls that a baptism. So he underwent the judgment of God for our sake. And if you look at it from that perspective, then it becomes clear that salvation can never lie in the act of baptism itself. That's what the Roman Catholics say, but that is wrong. And it cannot be that because the water of baptism itself does not save. Salvation lies in the name of the triune God, the name, who, the name that is pronounced over the waters of baptism, the name of God who delivers and who insists that we baptize in his name. You see, when we are baptized in the name of the triune God, then the death of Christ becomes our death. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. Romans 6 verse 4, the Apostle Paul writes, We were therefore buried with him, with Christ, through baptism into death. You see that? We were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So baptism becomes a symbol not of our drowning, but of our burial and our resurrection with Christ, our forgiveness and cleansing through his blood, and our renewal by his Holy Spirit. Now, if baptism were a sign of the promise of God, God's promise of cleansing, it cannot also be a sign of our faith. These, it cannot be both things at the same time. If it were a sign of our faith, it would make no sense to baptize infants, would it? For the obvious reason, as Baptists often remind us, that infants cannot have faith. Children cannot respond in faith when, when they get brought up here. But that's not the point. The point is not, can children respond in faith? Of course they can't. The question is, under whose dominion are they? Who do the children belong to? The Bible says there's only two kingdoms. Two dominions, either the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of Christ. There are only two options, and the biblical evidence for that is across the Bible. One obvious example is Colossians 1, verse 13 to 14, when it says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. So it implies that there are these two kingdoms, the domain of darkness, the domain of light, the domain of Satan, and the domain of God's Son. There's no neutral middle ground where your children get to wait until they have grown up and make a decision for Christ, as the terminology sometimes goes. Either they belong to one or the other. And it's not a question of faith. That's not the point. It is a question of dominion. Who, who, whose sphere are they under? Under whose authority are they? Now, one thing you notice when you read the Bible is that God often deals with people as families. People are born into families, they're raised in families, and so it makes sense that when God deals with them, he deals with them as family units. Now, it is also true that individuals are responsible for themselves, 
In Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, God says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So as individuals, each of us is responsible for our own sin. But when it comes to promises, when it comes to this question of authority, of dominion, then, then God deals with people as families. If the parents belong to God, so do the children. And that becomes especially clear when you study passages such as Ezekiel 16, verse 21. This passage came at a very bad time in the history of God's people. They had sunk so low that, that some of them even participated in heathen sacrifices. And the ultimate heathen sacrifice that you could make to a heathen god was to sacrifice their own child. Sometimes their firstborn, as some of these kings did. It's a really gruesome thought. It is something that is very foreign to us as as believers sitting here this afternoon that anyone in their right mind would do that. But it it does tell you something about the power and the persistence of heathen thinking. It was an old heathen religion from the land of Canaan that drew these people back in again. And so they, they became a part of this, some of them. And, and so the Lord holds that against them. But listen to what he says in Ezekiel 16, verse 21. He says to these people, you slaughtered my children. Isn't that interesting? That God actually says, these are my children. Not just their children, but God's covenant children. And in Ezekiel 18, verse 4, he makes a similar point when he says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. These children belong to God. And that's not just an Old Testament thing. This continues through to the New Testament. In Luke 18, verse 15, we read that the people were even bringing infants to him that he might touch them, Jesus. And the disciples rebuked the parents for that. They probably thought, oh, he doesn't have time for infants. He's busy teaching adults. He's instructing them in the faith. He doesn't need to spend time on infants who can't respond to what he says anyway. But according to the parallel passage in Mark 10 verse 14, Jesus was indignant. He was angry. He was upset with the disciples for their exclusivist attitude, for this division between parents and children. He said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belong the kingdom of God. In other words, the promises of God, the promises of his kingdom, of his dominion, are for infants and children as well. And Jesus proved that by taking them into his arms and blessing them. Okay, you should understand what this means. He is the Lord of the kingdom. If he takes these children into his arms, then that means that he implies that the kingdom is open to them. He's showing them his favor. He doesn't do that for just anyone, but he did it for these children. And there's more evidence that God deals with people as families. Ephesians 6 verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. The text does not treat them like little heathen children who have to make a decision for Christ at some point in time, but it calls them from infancy onwards, as soon as they understand, to to obey in the Lord. They are called to obey on account of the bond of faith that they share with their parents. It's on account of this this sphere of, of... of God's kingdom under which they are. In Ephesians 6 verse 4, the fathers are called to bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. 
It assumes that these children belong to the Lord. These are not just little heathen children that you dedicate to the Lord and then hope that, you know, at some point they'll, they'll respond in faith. You do hope that they will believe, but, but that's, you raise them as children who belong to the Lord. That's on the fathers to raise their children accordingly. Now, this background from Ephesians also sheds shed some more light on what we call the household texts. There's some texts in the Bible that, that uh, indicate people were baptized together with their households. And those households included quite possibly children as well. Now, it, it's an argument from silence, but um, it's a fairly uh, obvious thought that if, if a household in this case was not meant to include children, you would expect it to say that if this was an important point. But it doesn't say that. It says um, uh, that these people were baptized together with their household. God deals with these people as a family unit. And regardless of whether there's children included or not, the point is still that God deals with them as a family unit. One particularly interesting example is in Luke 16, verse 30. A jailer at Philippi asks Paul and Silas what he needs to do to be saved, and they tell him, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. That's interesting. You and your household, so you is in the singular. So the jailer, as the head of the household, needs to believe, and both he and his household will be saved. Now, obviously, anyone else in his family who is old enough to understand the gospel will also need to believe in order to be saved. But again, the point is that the gospel is for the entire family. It's not just for the jailer. And God does this today. He works through families. Most of us were born into a Christian family. Have you, dear brothers and sisters, ever thought about what a privilege this is? That you, most of you, maybe not all of you, but most of you were born into a Christian family. Have you marveled at the providence of God who put you in this family? It was not an accident. And if you're a a teenage member sitting here, it was not an accident. It was by design. Children of Christian parents are children of the promise. God uses this family environment to raise these children to know him. It's not just a question of being saved by being in the right place at the right time that you kind of, you know, follow the track by default. Children are not saved by the faith of their parents. But the faith of the parents does shape the children as they grow up. It's in this family environment by God's providence that you're first exposed to the faith. Mothers, think of all the hours that you have spent reading Bible stories to your children. That time is never wasted. Never underestimate the impact of those early years when you have those little children on your lap and you read them a Bible story before they go to bed. And fathers, you should be encouraged. You are not wasting your time when you lead in family worship and devotions. And yes, it is hard sometimes to get motivated. You come home from a long day at work and you're tired. You don't maybe always put your soul into it. But what is happening here has eternal significance. Your children are learning who God is. They're learning it from you. And that starts so early. A child at the age of two already can have a a basic understanding of who Jesus is. It's true, they're not always going to get the details right. It's kind of like the, the, the drawings that they make, right? It's sort of the big outline of it, but the point is it is there. 
Where does that come from? Where do these children learn that God, where God's, where do the children learn what God's promises are all about? It begins at home, and it continues at home through the teenage years. Parents, God uses you for that. He's given you the immense and difficult task of teaching the children to respond to God's promises. Yes, it is challenging. It's the hardest thing you'll ever do. Maybe you sometimes think it would have been better for someone else to have that job. But God didn't give the job of raising these kids to someone else. He gave it to you. You cannot argue with that providence. And the Bible is full of examples of parents who parented imperfectly, but they were still used by God. And here is where Isaac and Rebekah come in. Was um, a, a family that stayed childless for a long time. He was 40 when he got married, and maybe you noticed he was 60 when the twins were born. So for 20 years they waited. And um, when you read the story of Isaac and Rebekah, it's, it's a somewhat dysfunctional family. The parents had their favorites. Isaac preferred his older son Esau, whereas Rebekah loved her younger son Jacob. And this favoritism had profound consequences for how they interacted with the promises that God had made. They were not willing to wait for these promises to be taken into um, to, to play out in the natural way, but each took events into their own hands. Like God had had said at the beginning how things would be, and they tried to control the outcome for that. And um, most of you would be familiar with that story and with what happened afterwards. They got a lot of things wrong, but, and, and God had to give them a lot of grace. But the point is that God still used this family, and he certainly did it with Jacob and his four wives afterwards as well. If you want to see a dysfunctional family, that would be one. Jacob with his 12 sons, and his daughter. God still works through all of that imperfection and through all of that, those flaws. He still works out his covenant promises in the lives of, of his children. And if you're a parent and if you struggle with that, you have received the same promises as your children did. So when you make mistakes in parenting, you can receive the same forgiveness and the same grace that Isaac and Rebecca did. But you should remember, it's never just your words that shape your children. It is your example. You're not just teaching, you are modeling. The promises for you and for your children, but they will never know how to apply these promises unless you, unless you live it out so that they can look at your life. So here's the point. The baptism of your children is always a call to live out of the covenant promises yourself as a parent. Not because you believe that they are saved through your faith. You cannot make the promises on their behalf or any commitment on, on, on their behalf. You cannot answer the questions on their behalf. You cannot profess faith on their behalf. They cannot be saved on your behalf. They cannot be saved through your faith. But you are saved through your own faith. Faith in the promises of God. And that transforms your life. It transforms your parenting you're a living testimony to your children of the transformative power of these promises. So the covenant is with believers and with their children. And we should remember that as well. That if it's only with the children and not with the believers, the parents themselves, then, then they will see right through you if you don't live out of these promises. 
So you are called to believe in God's promises every day. The hymn is salvation. And you are also called to guard your family, brothers and sisters, and to guard the forces in our society that try to deconstruct the family on every level, cultural, social, and otherwise. The family is under the authority of God. The family is a place where these promises bloom in all of their fullness. And so we need to guard the family. We need to protect it in every way that we can. We need to protect it from all toxic influences in the world around us. And we need to be aware about any legislation that attempts to damage the family structure. The promises for you and for your children, it says in Acts 2 verse 39. The promise that God will be your God. The promises that baptism is never a sign of your faith. Because your faith can falter. Whether you're a parent or a child, your faith can falter. You can become discouraged. Baptism is never a sign of your faith, but of God's promises. Baptism says nothing about the faith of the person being baptized. It says everything about who God is, about what he says. And it tells us that he is reliable. He is generous. Consider the scope, the expansive rule of his promises. How marvelous that we may receive them. But how are they fulfilled? If it's not by the water of baptism itself... If it's not by the faith of the parents, even though the parents play an incredibly important role, how are these promises then fulfilled in the lives of our children? And that's our second point. First thing we should note is that not everybody who is baptized will ultimately have saving faith. Not everyone who is in the covenant responds with faith to God's covenant promises. But that does not make these promises null and void. Consider again the meaning of the imagery of baptism that we looked at earlier. It represents salvation through God, through the blood and spirit of Christ, but it also represents the judgment of God over sin. Those two things are together embodied in the imagery of the water. If you reject the covenant promises, your baptism is God's Guarantee to you that you will be judged for that. Esau was one example of someone who rejected God's promises. He did not respect them. And it showed in his attitude to the blessing. He was supposed to inherit a special birthright because he was a firstborn. And the thing we should remember is that there was a religious dimension with that as well. Bear in mind that this was the age of the patriarchs. So the family head served as the priest of the family unit. This was before there were priests, before there were Levites or an established temple service. So the head of the family was a kind of a priest. He built altars. He led in worship. When he died, the firstborn was supposed to take over. Esau was the firstborn, and he couldn't care less. He despised the, the religious dimension of his birthright. He didn't value it. He didn't value the promise of blessing that came with it. He didn't value the presence of God in his life. He didn't value the worship of God. And yeah, later on he changed his mind. He wanted the material blessings, as many people do, but still had no interest in the spiritual side of it. And so our, our reading from Hebrews says that he found no chance to repent, he, though he sought it with tears. 
But his repentance wasn't characterized by a desire to draw near to the Lord anyway. It was more like buyer's remorse. And instead of showing the fruit of faith with his repentance, he plotted to kill his brother. So not only did he not take the blessing seriously, but in the end he still didn't realize what it was about. So how should he have acted? Considering that they were both born into the covenant structure, but there was a special kind of a a promise made. He should have believed the promise that was made at his birth. God had foretold that Jacob would get the birthright anyway. So Jacob would have been the heir of the covenantal promise, in a sense. Esau could have still believed that. He could have responded to that in faith. He could have, because remember, Jacob then would have been the head. Esau could have been a part of that. He could have responded in faith to these promises that were made. He could have found his blessings by worshiping the God of Jacob and so shared in the covenant blessings anyway. But none of that happened. Both of these boys were born into the covenant, but Jacob believed God's promises. Esau didn't. And it's not because of God's promises failing. We need to remember a promise is never the same thing as a prediction. You have to get that straight in your head. A promise is not a prediction. God never predicts that anyone will have faith or that that anybody will be saved, but he does promise us if we look to him in faith and we will be saved. And as children grow up, they need to respond to the covenant promises. That's true for all of us. You can be a Christian without having been born into a Christian family. You cannot be a Christian without faith. And that's the testimony of baptism. The promises of baptism can also be fulfilled in unbelief. It can also be a sign of God's judgment against you. The baptism testifies this person needed to be cleansed, but he wasn't. He rejected God's promises. And if we reject the covenant promises that we've received, what else could be left for us but certain judgment? Hebrews 10 verse 29 warns us against that. It says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and who has outraged the Spirit of grace. We need to remember this, especially our youth. Youth, my young brothers and sisters, don't spend your time drinking and fooling around and pushing all of this stuff to the back of your mind and thinking you get to deal with it later. It doesn't work that way. The stakes are too high. Consider the words of Belgian Confession, Article 34. By baptism we are received into the church of God and set apart from all other peoples and false religions to be entirely committed to him whose mark and emblem we bear. I might have mispronounced that word last time. Um, It's emblem. Uh, Emblem is something that is used as an identifying mark. And so God's identifying mark, his emblem on us, is the water of baptism on our foreheads. comes down to lordship. He has lordship over us. We belong to him. So are we acknowledging his lordship in our lives? Yes or no? It's as simple as that. And maybe, maybe that's not really you, but for different reasons. Maybe your struggle is not with apathy or with indifference, but with fear. You're not sure if the promises are for you. If that's you, your baptism is a call to believe. 
And it's God's command to you to respond with faith. When you question God's promises in this way, it's actually a disguised form of unbelief. And it can seem very pious, and there are people who have turned this into a, a, a very pious, sort of a, a semi-humble kind of a thing. They're not sure if they dare to believe and so on, and they make this big thing out of it. But the fact is, if you question God's promises, it's actually a form of unbelief. You are already, you already belong. The question is not whether or not you belong. You already do. The question is, what are you doing with that? Are you grateful for that? Out of all the things that have happened to you, do you reckon your baptism as being the most precious? Listen carefully. The degree to which you take your baptism seriously is the degree to which you will have hope in your life. The degree to which you take your baptism seriously is the degree to which you will be able to fight sin in your life. Because baptism reminds us we belong to God and it fills us with joy. How gracious he is that he makes these promises to us in the first place. This is where you find salvation. This is where you find absolute certainty. Everything else in life might fall away. Everything else might disappoint you. But God's promises remain forever. So hold on to them. Believe them. Cherish them. Prize them above everything else. And you will be saved. Amen.